0: La Foss Corporation LLC. Greetings my Mysterians. Welcome back to Terry's Mysterious Moments. I am your presenter, Terry from Texas. Over the last couple of episodes, I've spoken about monsters we've heard about regarding the paranormal field. These are typical well-covered monsters. But monsters are well-known in and out of the paranormal field. Many come from the literary field, for instance, Frankenstein's monster, Dracula, Lestat, the vampire, from the works of Anne Rice. And some come from Hollywood. The Wolfman, The Mummy, Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers and the Sanderson sisters. Some come from the headlines of the local newspapers. Sensational, if questioning, reports of Bigfoot sightings and other strange and terrifying creatures. Some others come ostensibly from outer space or other dimensions. But for me, the monsters that scare me the most are the ones who walk, work, and sometimes worship right beside you. Day in, day out. People like Lizzie Borden, or John Wilkes Booth, or John Wayne Gacy, are the ones never known, like Jack the Ripper, the BTK Killer, although he was later identified, the Zodiac Killer, the Axe Man of New Orleans, the Axe Killer of Villisca, Ohio, and the Servant Girl Annihilator of Austin, Texas. Tell a group of people that someone within their community has a loose cobble in their noggin, and it puts him into a state of paranoiac fear, and that can turn deadly in a heartbeat. If law enforcement doesn't solve the crime quickly, paranoiac reflex can raise the body count exponentially. I looked up serial or multiple murders in the U.S., and very seriously, it made me ill to see the number of names on that list, and how many people are no longer alive due to those names. Of course, a number of those names no longer draw breath, some because of police-induced death, some from expiration in prison naturally, and others because of co-residential public service deprivation of life in prison. But what is it that makes or made these people kill and keep on killing their fellow humans? Is it pure evil that drives them? I would say yes, although some of these killers don't believe they're committing evil, heinous acts. Some believe they're following the voices in their heads and that they're doing God's work There are those, however, who believe they are doing Satan's bidding and offer their sacrifices to the devil. For instance, Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, indicated a certain fealty to Satan, which impelled him to do the things he did. Karma, being the unkind heifer she can be, he was captured by a crowd of citizens who beat the ever-loving stuffings out of him before the police responded and took him into custody. I like to think the police just stood by and watched it happen and then stepped in when the crowd got tired. Ramirez was taken to court, charged with all manner of murder and mayhem, and eventually was sentenced to death for his crimes. Again, Karma being the not so nice little wench that she is, Ramirez died in prison awaiting his death date. He did not escape judgment, though. That will come in time. Jeffrey Dahmer gave little indication of his monsterhood, which would surface after his high school graduation. He was reportedly a good student and well-behaved. Then, in his early teens, he came to the belief that he was gay. His downhill slide, academically, began about this time. He was given a tutor, which helped that aspect, but he'd already changed attitudinally. He took to drinking, but he finished school. But in those formative years, Dahmer had developed some rather peculiar sexual dreams, desires, and proclivities. They involved male torsos, unmoving sex partners, and the like. Several weeks after graduation, Dahmer picked up a hitchhiker who was en route to a rock festival upstate. He invited the hiker to his house for some beers. While there, Dahmer kills the hiker, does his thing, and then dismembers and disposes of the body. Thus the monster, still hidden to the public, makes itself known. After a stunted try at college, Dahmer then tries the army, but his pre-army lifestyle of drunkenness surfaces, and the army decides that he's not appropriate for the army. He's given an honorable discharge and separated from the army. Eventually, he came to ground in Milwaukee. Dahmer's monster would make itself known there. Through unusual circumstances, Dahmer was captured and eventually charged and found guilty of several murders and accompanying charges. Dahmer was incarcerated and began serving his life plus sentence. While in prison, Dahmer asked for and received a Bible, with which he began studying Christianity, and soon asked for and received baptism. Sometime later, Dahmer was working with two other inmates cleaning up the showers. One of the other inmates attacked the other two with a 20-inch iron bar, killing them both. Dahmer's monster was denied a host. H. H. Holmes was the alias of a man named Herman Mudgett. He was an American swindler and confidence trickster who's widely considered the country's first known serial killer. Mudgett was born into a wealthy family and showed signs of high intelligence from an early age. Always interested in medicine, he allegedly trapped animals and performed surgery on them. Some accounts of his life even suggest that he killed a childhood playmate. Mudgett attended medical school at the University of Michigan, where he was at best a mediocre student. In 1884, he was nearly prevented from graduating when a widowed hairdresser accused him of making a false promise of marriage to her. He wasn't necessarily considered to be deadly or vicious, but he was known for being a Weasley sort, always into schemes and things. In 1886, Mudgett moved to Chicago and took a job as a pharmacist under the name Dr. H. H. Holmes. Soon afterward, he apparently began killing people in order to steal their property. The house he built for himself, which would become known as the murder castle, was equipped with secret passages, trap doors, soundproof rooms, and doors that could be locked from the outside, gas jets to asphyxiate victims, and a kiln to cremate the bodies. At the reputed peak of his career, during the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893, he allegedly seduced and murdered a number of women typically by becoming engaged to them, then killing them after securing control of their life savings. Mudgett also required his employees to carry life insurance policies, naming him as beneficiary so that he could collect money after he killed them. He sold the bodies of many of his victims to local medical schools. In 1893, Mudgett was arrested for insurance fraud after a fire in his home, but he was soon released. He then concocted a the scheme with an associate, Ben Pitazel, to defraud an insurance company by faking Pitazole's death. After Pitazole purchased a $10,000 life insurance policy, he and Mudgett traveled to Colorado, Missouri, New York, Pennsylvania, Tennessee and Texas, where they committed other acts of fraud. Along the way, Mudgett also married. Returning to Missouri, Mudgett was arrested for fraud and briefly jailed in St. Louis. While in jail, he met Marion Hedgepath, a career criminal who agreed to help Mudgett in the insurance scheme with Pitazel. Meanwhile, Pitezel moved to Philadelphia and opened a fake patent office to swindle inventors. After his release from jail, Mudgett traveled to Philadelphia and killed Pitezel. He then convinced Pitezel's widow, who had been aware of her husband's involvement in the insurance scheme, that her husband was still alive, later giving her $500 of the money he had collected. Worried that some of Pitezel's five children might alert the authorities, Mudgett killed three of them. Insurance investigators were alerted to the fraud by Hedgepath, and Mudgett was arrested in Boston, Massachusetts in 1894. And he was tried in Philadelphia for the murder of Pitazel and was sentenced to death by hanging. Mudgett confessed to 27 murders. He later increased the total to more than 130, though there are some researchers who have suggested that the real number exceeded over 200. It's pretty solid that there were deaths he caused which weren't attributed to him. Peter Curtin, also known as the Dusseldorf Vampire, was a German serial killer whose widely analyzed career influenced European society's understanding of serial murder, sexual violence, and sadism in the first half of the 20th century. Curtin, the third of 13 children, experienced a violent childhood. His father, an abusive alcoholic, was imprisoned for three years for attempting to molest Curtin's 13-year-old sister. Before he was 10 years old, Curtin had apparently murdered two schoolmates. During his teenage years, he committed numerous petty crimes, and by the time of his last arrest, he had been sentenced to prison nearly 30 times. In the Dusseldorf area from February to November of 1929, he committed a series of brutal, And sadistic murders. Curtin's trial became a national event, attracting many academic observers as well as the merely curious. He candidly recounted details of his crimes to the celebrated psychologist Carl Berg, whose The Sadist in 1932 became a classic of criminological literature. According to Berg, Curtin was a sexual psychopath and his crimes represented a perfect example of lust lustmort, or murder for pleasure. At his trial on nine counts of murder and seven counts of attempted murder, Curtin was placed in a special cage to prevent his escape. He was sentenced to death and executed by guillotine. Berg's Biography of Curtin would ultimately influence all subsequent scholarship on serial murder. The case also had an impact on popular culture, serving as the basis of Fritz Lang's film M in 1931, in which a curtain-like character is memorably portrayed by Peter Lorre. Over the millennia, there have undoubtedly been numerous serial killers from different continents and different countries. I can't and won't go into them all, or very many for that matter, because this is a short show. But just imagine, you're sitting on your front porch after, say, a busy day of yard work. You're enjoying a favorite libation, lemonade in this case, when a police car pulls up to your quiet neighbor's house. The officers go to the door, knock, and are granted entrance. A few minutes go by and then there comes the noise of a physical altercation from within, culminating suddenly by the sound of several gunshots. Curious but not that curious, you stay rooted in your chair. Moments later, it seems like every police car in town is suddenly at your neighbor's house there is a flurry of excitement and local news vans appear and you find yourself besieged by strangers thrusting microphones and recording devices at you and sounding all the world like locusts as they ask questions about your neighbor. How long has he lived here? Did you see him very often? Was he very sociable? Did he have many guests? What about the family? After you extricate yourself from the root weevils, and flee to the safety of your domicile, you have a rush of questions yourself. Who was my neighbor? What did I know about him? And more. Eventually, over the next few hours and days, the truth comes out. The police were executing a welfare check for someone known to have been visiting your neighbor. While checking the house, the neighbor had become belligerent and attacked one of the officers, necessitating the other officer to use deadly force to stop him. Subsequent investigation led to the finding of the subject of the welfare check barely alive in the basement and badly abused. Further investigation found a number of skeletal remains in the basement and buried throughout the property. You would seem your quiet, relatively friendly neighbor had a sadistic streak he just couldn't keep down. Who knew? He gave no indication of this in his day-to-day dealings. The police questioned anyone they think may have some insight into this sick individual. After what seems like forever, the investigation ends. The story released to the public, this man was a sadistic serial killer with at least... 15 victims to his credit, and that's just in this town. Your thoughts on your former neighbor? Well, he, he seemed like a nice enough guy. That's the case so many times when people are arrested, and then it comes out that they're arrested for murder, multiple murders their neighbors go I just can't see him doing that or in this in some cases I can't see her doing that they were such a nice person some of these mass murderers will not be taken alive which also shocks the neighbors I didn't think he had it in him to do that he was such a quiet man murderers come in all shapes forms, sizes, colors, creeds. And some of them you just can't tell from looking. Not that you can tell much about people from looking at them, but, you know, there are some things that you can tell about people. But are they capable of murder? Are they capable of killing multiple people and not seem to have any remorse about it. Well, in my opinion, as long as they die for it, if it's beyond a doubt, let them die for it. Well, that's all I have for this week, so I want you to take care, have a good week, and come back again to listen to Terry's Mysterious Moments bye bye